This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following podcast is part five of five of Professor Hanko's series, The Doctrine of the Antithesis. This podcast concludes the two podcasts discussing the antithesis in the world and is the final podcast in the overall series. We have a few ends to tie up tonight and a few other items to which we must give our attention. We were discussing, as you recall, the antithesis in the world. And we last week pointed out that scripture uses a number of different figures to force home upon us the basic idea of the antithesis. The figure of citizenship and our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. The figure of the marriage of Christ and his church and of the separation before the final consummation of the marriage in heaven so that the bride and the bridegroom are separated from each other and the bride called to live a life which enables her to keep herself unspotted from the world. We also called attention to the fact that scripture uses the figure of a soldier armed for battle and that this world therefore must be considered by the child of God to be a battlefield in which he is called to fight. And we notice that the antithesis is expressed in a repeated figure of scripture both in the Old and New Testaments that the people of God are pilgrims and strangers in the earth. I think it's probably that last figure which is the one of greatest importance to us tonight. I want to remind you that we have here, if we confess that we are the children of God's covenant, no abiding city that determines our attitude towards the world about us towards the things which God has given to us, our earthly possessions, and towards our relationship to each other and to those outside the church. The first matter to which I want to give attention tonight is a matter that apparently we did not get completely clear in our minds last week. After the meeting last week, a few of you called to my attention that there were still questions. And those questions had to do particularly with the calling of the people of God in their expression of the antithesis to love their enemies. And I want to say just a few words yet about that and give you an opportunity to ask what questions you may have. I want to read the passage which is of 
greatest importance to us in this connection. That's Matthew 5, verses 43 and following. Matthew 5, as you know, is a part of the Sermon on the Mount, which we called last week the Constitution of the Kingdom of Heaven. This is the Constitution of the Kingdom of Heaven that governs the lives of the citizens of that kingdom in the world. Among many other things, Jesus says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, this is of course a reference to the tradition of the Jews in their interpretation of the law of God. Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. And the Jews appealed, of course, to Psalm 139 in support of the latter part of that. Do not I hate them that hate thee, O Lord. I hate them with a perfect hatred. So this was their interpretation of the law. Love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But, Jesus says, this is a principle of the kingdom of heaven and a principle which ought to govern your life as you live in the world antithetically as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. I made a sermon on this text not so long ago on this entire passage because of the fact that there was so much misunderstanding about it. I think I made the sermon in connection with the uh, Lord's Day that deals with the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. And as you all know, this was a passage high on the agenda in 1924, when on the Synod of Kalamazoo, the doctrine of common grace was being defended not going to go into that tonight. That will take us too far afield and we have too many things to talk about. I want to underscore verse 44. This is the word of Christ to us. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Now, 
As the Lord makes clear in verses 46 and 47, he doesn't mean to say that our love for our neighbor must be directed only towards those who persecute us. This is what someone would probably call a worst case scenario. We must love every neighbor whether he persecutes us or not. But certainly that's implied in the Lord's words. If we love our enemies, if we bless them that curse us, if we do good to them that hate us, and pray for them which despitefully use us and persecute us, then of course the same thing holds true for any neighbor whom the Lord places on our pathway. Now, I want to underscore the fact that there is one dominating principle in the life of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven in his attitude towards every neighbor, not only the neighbor out there, but the neighbor right here, the neighbor in his home, the neighbor who is his wife, the neighbor who is who are his children, the neighbor in the church, the neighbor who is his fellow saint, but also the neighbor out there, whomever God places next to him, so that when he moves, he bumps that other man. And usually because that other person is in his way, that's his neighbor, love him. That love which he must show to his neighbor is the one dominating characteristic of the pilgrim in this world. He seeks the salvation of his neighbor. That's the meaning of love. That's the highest manifestation of love. You don't love your children when you don't teach them anything about the Bible but shower down on them costly gifts. That's not love. You don't love your wife if you commit adultery but buy her a $5,000 diamond bracelet that's not love. Love is always that you seek the salvation of those in your home, of those in your church, and of those with whom you come in contact in the world. That's why Jesus speaks of that first. I say unto you, love your enemies. What does that mean? Well, that means to bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them, that is, for their salvation, which despitefully use you and persecute you. That's our attitude. That's our fundamental attitude. Love determines Love in the sense of wanting the salvation of our neighbor determines our relationship with them. 
We don't have fellowship with them. We seek their salvation. And whatever is required on our part to seek their salvation is a manifestation of love. That's quite contrary, of course, to everything the world stands for. But that's the characteristic, the dominating characteristic of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Loving our neighbor would seem to imply that we uh, have fellowship with that neighbor and that we come to know them as best we can, something achievable only through the way of fellowship and so on and so forth. That is not true. That is the full and complete expression of love. When we love our enemies and bless them that curse us, we are loving them not in the sense of embracing them and taking them into our fellowship, but we are loving them in the sense of seeking their salvation so that we may have fellowship with them and so that they may be incorporated into the company of the people of God, where fellowship reaches its full perfection. That's what Jesus means here, and that's clear, it seems to me, also in connection with that one remark you made, which I would want to take serious exception to, that we love those who, in whom is to be found something lovable. That's exactly not the point. And that's why Jesus points to God as being our Father whom we imitate. Children imitate their Father. If we are children of our Father in heaven, we imitate Him. Does He love us because He finds in us something lovable? The very opposite is true. Very opposite. If he loved us because he would find in us something lovable, his love would be conditioned upon our own love for him and our own willingness to do what's right, of which there is nothing in us at all. He loves us even though we are entirely and totally unlovable. And Jesus is saying, that's what we must do to our neighbors. What is lovable about someone who persecutes us, who curses us, who hates us? But even them, even them, Jesus says, you must love. Not in the sense that you embrace them and take them into your fellowship, but in the sense that you do what you can to bring them into the fellowship of the church and into your own fellowship. That's seeking their love. And that means, you know, let me, let me refer to another passage of Scripture, which is a kind of a stirring example of this. When the people of Judah were brought into captivity in Babylon, in this foreign land, what was the command of God to them as to how they should live in relationship to their captors? 
in relationship to the Babylonians, the heathen who worshipped idols and who were godless people. Well, of course, the admonition was don't do like them and worship their idols, but it was this. And Jeremiah made that very clear. In so far as in you lies, live peaceably with all those around you. That was the calling of Judah in captivity. We are in captivity, in the captivity of this present world, in the Babylon of this present time. We must not live as they do. We must love those with whom we come into contact. And we must say the scriptures to us, in so far as in us lies, live peaceably with them all. Don't pick a fight. Don't return evil for evil. Don't sneeringly look down upon them as a lesser class of people degraded by their sins. God didn't look that way on you. Live peaceably with them. Not by having fellowship with them or be becoming partaker in their evil deeds, but by showing in your life you are the children of your Father which is in heaven. That's very difficult. You understand that that's contrary to our nature. It's contrary to our natures in the church. When somebody does something that I consider evil to me, my tendency is to strike back immediately. Get the rascal. But that's not conduct of the citizens of the kingdom because that's what love is that's the very nature of love the question is what is there in the text which means that we desire the salvation of our neighbor the answer is we are called to love them genuine love is not mere sentimentality not physical attraction. Genuine love is seek the salvation of those whom God has placed on our pathway. If you love your wife, you seek her salvation. That doesn't mean to say you doubt her salvation, but as a husband, you live with her so that you are conscious always of your responsibility to seek her salvation. And the same with your children. Otherwise, why teach them? We love them for Christ's sake, because we love Christ. Furthermore, that means that this is our calling in the world in relationship to all the neighbors whom God places on our pathway, because we don't know who are Christ's and who are not who are elect and who are reprobate. We don't know that. God hasn't told us. And so when we love our neighbor, we commend our neighbor to God because we know that only God can save. Nevertheless, God is pleased to use us if our neighbor is an elect. That's why Jesus admonishes the citizens of the kingdom to let their light so shine before men 
that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. It's in the same constitution of the kingdom of heaven. There are stories, true stories, for example, of martyrs at the time of the Roman emperors who were being tortured by their enemies, by Roman soldiers or whatever. I can tell you some of those stories. Who, while they were being tortured, were praying for those who were torturing them. Polycarp was a notable example who was burned at the stake. God used that in some instances to bring their persecutors to the faith. They saw the, the courage and steadfastness and faithfulness of those who were willing to lose their life for the sake of the truth of Christ. And God used that to save them. Does not loving our neighbor cancel the antithesis? No, it does the very opposite. It expresses the antithesis. And it expresses the antithesis as sharply as it's possible to express it because it says when we love our neighbor, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We want you to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And therefore we pray for you, do good to you, help you in your need, that you may see what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, that you may, if God be pleased, join us in our calling to express the antithesis. To my mind, nothing expresses the antithesis more sharply than that. If we make of love mere sentimentality, mere slop, and we love everybody and do good to everybody and in the sense of having fellowship with them. We simply condone their sin, that's all. We simply say, it's all right for you to walk the wicked way you walk. But we don't. We don't. Our words and our lives are testimonies of our desire that they repent. What do you want us to do as the antithesis? Hate them? Every time we meet an unbeliever, punch him in the nose? Of course not. You, you would never concur with that. You would never call that the antithesis. There were those in, in years gone by, radicals who advocated that. Man manifests himself as an unbeliever. Turn your back on him. Berate him. Holler at him. Shout in his face. That isn't the antithesis. That isn't how God dealt with us. Isn't it true that love never stops? If it is a love that is what Paul calls the bond of perfectness. No, it never stops. Now abideth faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. It never stops. 
But the love that seeks the salvation of an unbelieving neighbor is a love that functions in its power. I think I said that last time. Let me underscore it. Functions in its power as a two-edged sword, just as the gospel does, because it's an expression of the gospel. Our love is an expression of the gospel that we preach. And when it functions as a two-edged sword, it has the power to save, if God is pleased to use it, to save his elect, or the power to harden. You must not forget that. Love will never leave one neutral. Love will never leave one dangling in space, so to speak. But love will bring one into the fellowship of the church by the blessing of Almighty God, or love will harden in sin. When love hardens in sin, then the consequence of that is that we are no longer able to do good to that one. He won't have it. Not only that, but our expression of love will be by his hardening, his unbelief, his rage against our love, a means of distancing him from us more and more and more. I think in a certain sense of the word, there is... at least with some of our neighbors, a love that endures at least as long as time goes on. We have children that go astray and we call them to their responsibilities before God. And they reject our pleas, our witness, our testimony, an increase in sin. I think parents usually continue to pray for them nonetheless. When we get to heaven, if they are not among God's elect, then we rest in the sovereign purpose and almighty work of God and pray for them, of course, no longer. Even in this life, the farther they drift into the world, the less frequent our prayers become because we always pray that God will yet save them if it be his will. But when it becomes increasingly clear to our great sorrow that it is not God's will, our prayers become less frequent. But there is a sense that at least as long as life goes on, we love them in the sense that we pray for them. Fellowship with the ungodly we may not have. And by fellowship now, I refer specifically to 2 Corinthians 6. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And Paul, in a startling list of names and designations, 
describes the unbelievers versus the people of God and emphatically states the two have no fellowship with each other. That means, as I intimated last week, that we may not join with them in their causes, that we may not cooperate with them in their purposes, because their purposes are earthly, devilish, carnal, and intent on setting up in this world the kingdom of darkness, while we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, to join with them in their purposes would compromise not only, but destroy the testimony which we are called to bring. I'd like to underscore that by pointing you to the fact that in life, corporate responsibility is a real thing. Corporate responsibility belongs, of course, to the whole human race as they came from Adam their head. The whole human race is corporately responsible for Adam's sin of disobedience in paradise. I am, you are. We are guilty for eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Our total depravity is God's punishment upon us for the guilt of our sin of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That corporate responsibility, however, that belongs to the human race as a whole, belongs to every subdivision of society. There is a family corporate responsibility that is expressed in the second commandment. God visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate him. There is a corporate responsibility in the church, so real that if a church as a denomination goes astray in doctrine or in walk, everyone in the church is responsible for that. And if something is not done about it by the individual, he is punished along with the denomination that apostatizes. There is a corporate responsibility in a place of work. You may work for an unbelieving employer, but there is a corporate responsibility that embraces you. And there is a, a, a national corporate responsibility. I need only point you, for example, to what happened to Achan when the nation of Israel stood before the walls of Ai and Achan had stolen some of the goods from Jericho. What happened? 37 soldiers, fathers in Israel, or stalwart young men, were killed by God when they didn't even know that Achan had committed the sin. Corporate responsibility. Now I bring that up here because as the world develops in sin and increases in wickedness, as we pointed out last time, that corporate responsibility weighs with increasing heaviness upon the child of God who is a citizen of a nation and who is responsible for the sins of the nation. You may not like it, 
but it is a fact that you are responsible and I am responsible for the millions of abortions that are committed in the United States of America and God holds us guilty for that terrible sin. Now you ask, how do we escape that corporate responsibility that belongs to us as well as to the wicked? And then we are back again where we started. The way to escape that corporate responsibility is number one, repent of that sin. Not as it is in our own lives, although if it is in our own lives, by all means, repent of it. But as it is the sin of a nation of which I am a part, confess before God the awfulness of the sin and bring it to the foot of the cross along with your own individual sins. But number two, the way to escape that corporate responsibility is condemning evil and testifying of the truth. That's the way, that's our calling. That's our calling as pilgrims and strangers. Silence simply drags us into the pit of the corporate responsibility of the nation of which we are a part. Pilgrims and strangers cannot bear the load of the sins of the nation that are upon them. They bring those sins to the cross too. And if you don't understand what that means, then I suggest that you read Daniel, what is it, chapter seven or eight, where in a long and beautiful and sometimes startling prayer, Daniel confesses the sins of the nation of Judah before God, sins of which he himself personally was never guilty, but sins which brought Judah into captivity and brought him into captivity as well. Our fathers have sinned and we have sinned. Be merciful to our nation. That was Daniel's prayer. That must be our prayer. But that prayer must bear its fruit in testifying before the whole of the nation in so far as we are able against these sins that are a part of the nation in which we live. In that way, at the foot of Calvary, confessing our part in them and condemning them in the nation and in ourselves. We are forgiven the guilt of those sins. Same thing is true in the church. Same thing is true in the schools. We're not nearly enough conscious of that. When someone in the church, a fellow saint, falls into sin, we're too quick to get on the phone and talk about it to everybody else and paint a dreadful picture of the sinner. We ought to be not on the phone, but on our knees. 
because that sin is ours. We bear responsibility for it before God. And the only way to escape that responsibility is at the foot of the cross where we confess our own sins and see how it all comes together. Seek the salvation of the sinner. I'm going to introduce this last subject with which we are to deal by giving you the sum and substance of a very interesting discussion which I had only a very short time ago with one of my colleagues in the seminary. It isn't important who said what in the discussion which we had together. These are some of the things we talked about. We were discussing in general the fact that there are some people of God in the Church of Jesus Christ who are called to suffer in ways that most of us know nothing about. They carry heavy burdens, they have many trials, their sufferings are great. There aren't so many of them, but they are there, as you all know. As we were talking about them, mention was made of the fact that there are many preachers in evangelical circles today, in the evangelical churches, who would say that if God loves you, you live a life free from trouble and care. A life of prosperity, a life of ease, a life of pleasure. And so much has that notion been ingrained into our souls that one of the first questions we ask ourselves when trouble comes into our lives, what have I done wrong? What is God, why is God doing this to me? What is the reason for his chastening hand on me? Try to imagine what those evangelists and evangelical preachers do to a soul whose pathway in life is bitter and full of grief and suffering. The only conclusion they could possibly come to if they listen to that kind of preaching is this, God does not love me. At that point in the discussion, another point came up. It certainly is not true that those who suffer greatly and bear heavy crosses are not loved by God, but perhaps, just perhaps, the opposite is true. That the love of God is not to be measured, for the love of God for you and me, is not to be measured in freedom from sickness, in wealth, in an easy life, in a trouble-free pathway in this world, but maybe, just maybe, the love of God is to be measured in the intensity of our suffering and in the heaviness of the crosses that we bear, so that those who suffer greatly and those whose pathway is one of deep affliction are in a special way the objects of God's love, far more so 
than we to live a life that is free from trouble. That thought set off many other ideas which were expressed in the course of the discussion. And one of them was this, that certainly the scriptures as a whole in describing the life of the child of God, never, not once, describe the life of the child of God as being a life trouble-free, filled with pleasure, without worry, without cares, without suffering and affliction. Scripture presents the life of the child of God as just exactly the opposite. When three disciples, would-be disciples, expressed the willingness to follow Christ, and the first one of the three came brimming with enthusiasm and jumping for joy and stuttering and falling over his words as he tried to express his eagerness to be a disciple of Christ, Christ said to him, just a minute before you are so enthusiastic about this, don't forget that the birds have nests and the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. If you're going to be a disciple, you're going to follow me. And when Jesus in more than one place describes discipleship, he doesn't speak of disciples as being trouble-free people whose life is a life of enjoyment and pleasure and riches and fame and health and strength, but a life of self-denial, a life of cross-bearing. If anyone would be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And if you happen to be wealthy, and you want to know how to inherit the kingdom, go sell all that thou hast and come and follow me. Read the scriptures. Where do you find that it is normal and natural? These are some of the things we talked about. For those whom God loves to live lives of ease, lives free from trouble. I don't mean, generally speaking, with an occasional problem, an occasional cross, an occasional bit of trouble. I mean, the scriptures present the lives of the people of God as pilgrims and strangers in the world as being lives of suffering, trouble, grief, pain, poverty, Self-denial. Now what are we going to do about that? In the course of pondering that between the two of us, the remark was made that the problem, the problem is we are too entangled in the things of this world. Too entangled in riches and pleasure. And maybe, just maybe, we ought to think about it 
that that's because God does not love us very much. And because there is a reciprocal relationship between the two, maybe God's love for us is not as great as his love for the martyrs and as his love for those who fled all and forsook all to follow Christ. For us as it is for them. That gave us both pause. It must have been at least three or four minutes that we both sat there in silence, each with his own thoughts. Why is it that our lives are so different from everything Scripture presents as being characteristic of the life of one who is a pilgrim and a stranger? Why is that? Because we love the things of this present time. That's why. You say, yes, but God always loves his people. He loves them for Christ's sake. Of course, of course. If it were not that, it would be hopeless. We'd all perish. But the Lord reminds us that there are degrees of reward in heaven. And when I think of the life of ease and luxury, generally speaking, which most of us live, including myself. Somewhere among those whose degree of reward is infinitesimally small, you will find us in our day of affluence. Does God love us with all our riches more than he loves the poor saints in Myanmar who do not know always where their next meal is coming from? Does God love us more when he gives us the wonders of modern technology to cure diseases than the minister in Myanmar who told me that he and his wife had to watch their son die before their very eyes because, although medical treatment would have cured him, they didn't have the money to pay for it? Would any of you dare, I would not, say that God's love is certainly greater for us than for that poor minister who had to bury his son, who would not have died if they lived in the United States of America. Those are troubling thoughts. I recommend them to you. The effect of our conversation sent me home thinking. And the burden of that conversation is with me to this very moment. A pilgrim and a stranger. On the one hand, he claims the whole world is his own, and on the other hand, he doesn't want any part of it. He's a peculiar fellow, he's an odd man, he's one that is beyond the understanding of worldly people. 
He truly lives the life of a pilgrim. He finds that the things of this present time, while desirable in themselves from many points of view, can easily become a heavy burden, so heavy that he can't carry it on his pilgrim's pathway. It weighs him down. And because he insists on keeping the burden of all his treasures and possessions with him, dear to his heart, he stops on the side of the road and he sets up a tent the stakes of which are driven so deeply into the ground that it becomes a permanent residence and he loses his way on the path that leads, to use the words of John Bunyan, to the celestial city. This is God's world. Let that be understood first of all. And the things in it are God's. And because they are God's, they are ours. This creation, with all of its powers, with all of its beauties, with all of its greatness, is God's, and therefore ours, not the world's. We are therefore to receive what God gives us of his creation with thanksgiving. Paul makes that very clear in the passage we read a few weeks ago. Every gift of God is good and is to be received with thanksgiving when it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. There's the hitch. When it is sanctified by the word of God in, and prayer. We receive them with thanksgiving when we don't sanctify them. And we don't sanctify them because we have our hearts set on them. So much so that the greatest pain is ours when for one reason or another we are separated from them. We are to receive, therefore, all the inventions of a wicked world which make use of the powers of God's creation insofar as God makes them available to us with thanksgiving, sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Unregenerate men can build computers. Computers can be used for the kingdom of heaven. Unregenerate men can build Dodge caravans, which can be used for purposes of seeking the kingdom of heaven. They can also be used for sinful purposes. Unregenerate musicians can write beautiful symphonies. Handel, George Frederick Handel, can write the Messiah though it's more than likely he was not a child of God. Mozart can write astonishingly glorious symphonies. That ought not to surprise you. An unregenerate man can preach a good sermon. 
And if the congregation is unaware of the fact that he is unregenerate, they can receive the sermon with thankfulness and sanctify it by the word of God and prayer. All things are ours. But when the wicked use those same powers of the creation for evil, the child of God says, no, that's an abuse. You are not receiving them as gifts of God with thankfulness, nor are you sanctifying them by the word of God in prayer, but you are putting them in the service of sin. And so there is a whole tradition in the world of using the gifts of the creation, God's creation, in the service of sin, beginning with Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal-Cain. And that tradition of the wickedness of the world applies to all the arts, including music. And when I hear the car of a young person of the church go past with rap music blaring at 85 decibels from the window, then I don't think of the kingdom of heaven, but I think of Jubal and the beginning of a long tradition of godless and sinful music which the child of God must spurn. How do you sanctify God's gifts? By his word and by prayer. How do you do that? You do that by remembering that you're a pilgrim and a stranger in the earth and that you need a few things from the creation in order to carry on your pilgrimage and you need a few things in order to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which is your calling. You can't do that without a few things, but you don't need much. That's why we are instructed in the Lord's Prayer to pray, give us this day our daily bread. As my father used to put it, in the days of the Depression, when we might not have both oleo and jam on our bread, only one or the other. Remember, you're richly blessed, he would remind us, because you may pray only for bread. And here God gives you bread with jam on it. What a great gift of God you have. He gives you more than you may pray for. We don't need much. That doesn't mean that if God gives us more, and he has given all of us much, much more, that we may not receive them with thanksgiving. But again, there's where we fail. We don't sanctify them by the word of God and by prayer. And again, the question comes up, how do we do that? Well, we do that in this way. We remember that all of our earthly possessions, bar none that we receive from God, must be used in the service of his kingdom. That is, 
We must live as pilgrims and strangers in the consciousness of the fact that this world is not our dwelling place. How does the old Negro spiritual put it? This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. And because this world is not my home, but my home is in heaven, the things of this world that God gives me must be used in order that I may pursue more fully and carefully my pilgrim's journey. They must not get in the way. They must not become a load that I can't carry anymore. They must only be shoes on my feet to walk the path that God calls me to walk. They must only be the ability to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness as it is manifested in his church and in all the causes of God's kingdom here in the world. They're temporary things. They're like a man who's going to set out on a journey and he's going to have to go through some very cold, snowy country because he's going to have to walk over some high mountain ranges. But his destination is a land of warmth and sunshine. So you say to that man as you equip him for travel, here is an overcoat to keep you warm when you're at 12,000 feet. And here are boots to wear when you have to tramp through deep snow. But when you get to your destination, you're not going to need them anymore. They're just temporary things to get you there. So don't, as you go along the way, pick up an additional overcoat because you happen to like overcoats so well. And don't carry an extra pair of boots. You won't need them because where you're going, they don't wear boots. But if you're intent, if you're intent on acquiring all these extra clothes because you see a beautiful coat that attracts your attention and you buy it, not because you need it, but because you like it, you love it, you're forgetting that you're on a journey and you're making your journey all the more difficult. And if you get too much, you might not get there especially if you're unwilling to throw away your extra burden when you're huffing and puffing up that steep rocky slope to an altitude of 12,000 feet. And you don't want to part with one of the possessions which you have acquired along the pathway of this life. But I promise you, when you reach your destination, you won't need them anymore. That's what God says to us. And that's how they are sanctified, the things God gives us, by the word of God and prayer. We keep our eyes fastened upon the celestial city. We're on a journey. We don't want to be encumbered. Paul in Hebrews 12, after that gloriously beautiful roll call of the heroes of faith, 
And after reminding us that we are surrounded by a great company of heroes of faith who have gone before us, says, lay aside all the things that encumber you, that hinder you in pursuing your journey as you travel as a pilgrim and a stranger. Now he uses the figure of a race as you run the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. That is our attitude towards earthly possessions. That's how they are sanctified by the word of God and prayer. We don't do very much of that sanctifying. Because we happen to like that 90-95-19-2005-that-year-isn't-it-2005-I-don't-know-the-names-of-these-cars-Ford-something-or-other-SUV-that's-got-four-wheel-drive-never-gets-stuck-in-the-winter air conditioning, all kinds of luxuries, which you can enjoy as you go along seeking pleasure. Have you sanctified it by the word of God and prayer? That's what Paul says. All God's gifts are good. And they are received with thanksgiving. And sanctified. That is, set apart. That's the meaning of the term sanctified. Set apart for the service of God and the cause of his kingdom. That's a pilgrim. That's a stranger in the world. He sits loose to the things of this present time. They're nice. The gifts of God. I'll even enjoy them in so much as I am able and have the time. But I won't enjoy them in such a way that I think them essential to my life. I won't enjoy them so that I become entangled in them and entrapped by them. So that if I have to part with them, it tears my heart to pieces. God takes them from me. I can scarcely bear it. If the stock market goes down, I'm going to get that rascal of a broker who didn't get me out of bad stocks in time. You understand that? That's hard, isn't it? What shall I do, the rich man says, to inherit the kingdom of heaven? Well, says Jesus, keep the law. I've done all that. And he meant it. He had. One more thing. Remember, you're a pilgrim and a stranger in the earth, and you must follow me. And he who would be my disciple must deny himself and take up his cross to follow me. So go sell all that thou hast and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. 
That was the lesson of the parable of the unrighteous steward. The wisdom of the world makes fools of the people of God because an ungodly steward knows how to prepare for the future when the people of God don't. When their future opens up before them as an everlasting kingdom of righteousness and to prepare for that glorious future, they use the mammon of this present time in the service of God and in the cause of his kingdom. I hope you understand how I started this out. God has given us so much. Are we going to say now that that's because God's love for us is so great? Maybe, just maybe, he isn't very pleased with us. And sometimes God punishes sin with sin so that he says to you and me, you find your joy and pleasure in the things of this world that are traps for your soul, I'll give you more of them and more yet until as with Israel in the wilderness when they choked on quails, our spiritual life is choked by the abundance of things which God gives us. But as Psalm 106 explains that incident in Israel's life, he gave leanness to their souls. They despised the heavenly bread. And so they starved spiritually. I'm not talking about you in distinction from me. I'm talking about my own struggle to be a good steward of the things which God has given me. Talking about my own calling to be a pilgrim and stranger in the earth. Talking about the fact that my eyes are dimmed so that the light of the celestial city lies almost unnoticed before me because I have my eyes glued to the things of this present time. I'm talking about the fact that I worry that God has given me so much because he doesn't love me very much. My cross is easy. My suffering is little. My pathway is easy. Ought I to get down on my knees and pray Lord, send me trouble. Take away my riches. They are snares to my soul. No, although the Lord may do that. But I had better pray. Lord, not only teach me what it means to be a pilgrim and a stranger in times of wealth and affluence, because really deep down in my heart I know, make me willing that I may esteem the treasures of heaven better than silver and gold. I am struggling 
to walk the pilgrim's pathway. Are you? Will you join me? Will you? We may walk together this sometimes very difficult road of self-denial and cross-bearing because the light of the celestial city shines in our eyes. There, forever, all things will be ours in a world without sin. Shall we waste our time then on houses and lands when that awaits us? God forbid. I've said what I wanted to say. Our Father who art in heaven, how beautiful and instructive and comforting and encouraging are the ancient songs of Israel. How they ring within our hearts. How they fill us with joy and gladness as we pursue our way to Mount Zion. How they are ever the delight of all those who put their trust in thee and with the gift of music seek to bless and praise thy holy name. We are thankful for the rich heritage of music as well as for the rich heritage of the truth. We are thankful for these hours we have spent together. We are thankful for the fellowship we have. We are thankful for the scriptures which teach us the right and good way. We are thankful above all that to us is committed the privilege of being of the party of thy covenant in the midst of the world with the glorious calling to speak of the praises of our God not only in the words which we utter, but in the life which we live as we pursue our way to that city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker thou art. Our sins are more than we can count. We are ashamed. We confess them before thee. Not only be merciful and forgive, but, O oh God, give us the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit that changes our minds, our hearts, our wills, cleansing them from all the love of the things of this present time and directing our eyes towards the glory that awaits us when we are delivered from this world of sin and darkness. Bless what we have discussed to our hearts. Grant us much grace that we may think on these things and hear us receiving our gratitude for thy gifts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, 
hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.